following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. Um, oh, it's good to actually hear a good morning back. Uh, we... Um, as I mentioned, we'll be jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount series. Um, there were some things, though, that I felt like I wanted to say further in our, in kind of the New Year's charts that I gave last week, uh, but for the sake of time, felt like I had cut out. And so this morning, I, I, I want to kind of almost do a part two to last week's message and share a bit more about this idea of give us this day, what it means to live in the present, and the things that uh, God uh, wants of us in the sense of living uh, a moment-to-moment, day-by-day faith. So join with me in a word of prayer, and then we'll take a look at uh, the message for this morning. Father, uh, as we usher in a new year, um, we pray that it would um, just give us a moment of pause. We know that New Year's traditionally is not a religious holiday, and yet it helps us to mark the time, the passing of time, and gives us an opportunity to reflect on what's happened in the the past year, how we've lived our lives, and um, looking to a new year given to us as a gift from you, and how we ought to uh, make the most of every opportunity that you give to us. And so give us a, a moment of pause, of reflection, of evaluation as we look into our hearts and, and see what it is that we're really living for, and how we might honor you uh, through the day that you give us each day in this new year. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so in last week's message, I did give a New Year's charge to the church. And I shared about how it is so hard for us to live in the present. That there's such an easy escape to dwelling in the past. Or uh, just being fixated on the future. So that even though physically uh, we're present at any moment... Uh, the truth is often our mind is not really fully there. We're, we're thinking about something that happened in the past or, or we're, we're already um, preoccupied with what we have to do later on or something like that. And um, the truth is often we escape into the past or into the future because there's something about the present that is unpleasant or that we don't want to deal with or that we just don't want to face. Uh, and I think that's happened a lot during this pandemic because the truth is these are trying times that we're going through. Um, an author recounted a time uh, when he was sitting on a couch uh, and he, he kind of built this little cabin for himself in his backyard. And he kind of lived in this wooded area where he, he could have his own little study back there, his office. And so sitting on that couch, this large spider emer- emerged from underneath the cushions. And uh, he didn't like spiders, and he was actually terrified by that experience. And so this is what ended up happening as a result of that. Um, Every time that he would sit on that couch going forward, uh, he would have to take every one of those cushions and basically pull them off the couch and inspect the couch and check all the cushions to make sure that there weren't any spiders hiding in the couch anymore. Um, And he writes that he did this for years, for a couple years, 
every time he sat on this couch until one day he just finally came up to the realization that in all those years after that initial experience, he never once discovered another spider in the couch. And he thought of all the wasted time of inspecting that couch because of that one experience. And that story reveals how negative experiences in our past tend to have an undue power to shape how we approach future experiences. It's the way that the past can haunt us and pursue us so that, especially when we go through difficult things, it can really have an um, undue influence on how we live in the present. Um, It's this statement, I'll never let that happen again. And we end up overreacting to those experiences. I think a similar experience happened in our family when there was just this one time we were going to go to Great America. And as we were driving on the way there, Betty just had this nagging feeling. And she was saying, uh, I think we left the garage door open. And I was like, nah, I'm pretty sure I closed it. She's like, no, I I didn't see you close the garage door. So uh, we had to literally turn around and drive all the way back home. And uh, sure enough, the garage door was opened. And it was like, oh, man, what would have happened if we were gone all day and the garage door was open? And so after that experience, for the next decade, there would be these moments when we're like halfway to our destination. And Betty's like, I think you didn't close the garage door. And I'd be like, no, I closed it. I know I closed it. Uh, But sure enough, we'd turn around and go back home. Uh, And here was the thing, was um, after all of those moments of turning back to check the garage door, uh, not once in that entire decade was it ever opened again, you know? And so, but, but this is just what that one experience did. And so finally, after a decade, I installed this Wi-Fi unit so that she could check on her phone. (laughs) And now, through technology, the garage door is closed. So we're not turning around and driving back there and checking. But this is the way that we can get stuck in the past, isn't it? Um, And it's the way that we can end up being even imprisoned by our past experiences. Um, But it's not only the negative experiences that can trap us in the past. We can also romanticize the past as the good old days. That makes it so hard for us to accept how things have changed in our life. And the truth is, the older I get, the more I find myself doing this, longing for the past that I've lost. And it's funny, we joke around that our our family is probably the most photographically documented family in in Chicagoland because um, I, I have literally terabytes of digital photos of our kids. And um, I like to look back through them every once in a while. And whenever I look back at these pictures of our family when they were younger, Judah's not even in this picture. He wasn't even born yet. But I see um, how cute they were and how much I just wish I had them again like that. And especially during these holidays, uh, when they come home just for a little while and It's already now getting to the time when Beth and Luke are getting ready to head back to U of I. And there's just this sadness that starts overtaking me because the house is so quiet now. And I remember back in those days 
when I would just get so frustrated going, can you all just shut up, you know, and give me some peace in this house? And like just five kids running around uh, causing trouble and fighting with each other. And what I wouldn't give to see them fighting like that again, you know, or just grabbing them and wrestling with them, squeezing their cheeks and uh, playing with them. If I just keep thinking, if only I had a second chance, you know, I would appreciate it so much more to have them back like that again. Um, for some of us, it's not about the past, but we're fixed on the future. All of our hopes and our worries are focused on the possibilities of tomorrow. And maybe we're disappointed with the present, but at least we can make tomorrow a better day. We have some hope for that. But as we, I talked about last week, we have so little power to control the future that it often results in a lot of anxieties. Uh, James says in chapter 4, verse 13 to 14, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's the wisdom that the Bible offers us, is to live in tomorrow, putting all of your hopes and what you're wishing for in the future is such an unstable foundation on which to build your happiness, your hopes, your meaning. And so as I stated last week, God wants us not to dwell on yesterday or to be fixated on tomorrow, but to live fully present for today. Matthew chapter 6, 33 to 34 was, I think, the key verse that I shared with you last week. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And the point I made last, in the last message was how important it is to see that connection that Jesus is making between seeking his kingdom and living focused on the opportunities of each day that are presented to us, not worrying about tomorrow. In other words, I think what God is saying is that the past and the future are God's domain. We have no power over either of those. But what we are given is the present, each new day as our domain within which we are invited to experience the kingdom of God. Um, and what I want to do this morning is to elaborate a little bit more on what it means to live in the present. And I, I think actually the Lord's Prayer is a really helpful framework to trying to understand what that kind of present day-by-day -day living looks like. I already referenced the Lord's Prayer last week when we looked at Matthew chapter 6, 11, this prayer that give us today our daily bread. I think with all of the insecurities that we experience in life, there is so much that we want to ask of God. So many reassurances we want that our future is going to be okay. But Jesus tells us, don't worry about tomorrow, but discipline your focus to simply Think about what it is you need today. What does God need to provide for you in this moment in your life? Because this is what's before you. At the heart of the Lord's Prayer is a request for God's kingdom to come to earth. Matthew 6, verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think a lot of us mistake this prayer to mean that it, what we're actually asking is for heaven to come, for history to end, and for Jesus to return. Now, we ought to pray for the return of Jesus, but that's not what this prayer is asking. This is not asking for the return of Jesus when we say your kingdom come. Because look specifically at what the prayer says. This is a request that God would make the kingly reign of Jesus, which has already begun to break into our world, a greater and greater reality here on earth in this age. I pointed out how the Jewish expectation of the Messiah was off the mark because they were looking for a military political leader who would overthrow their Roman occupiers and restore Israel to its days of former glory. And here's the thing. They may have been misguided in wanting their Messiah to defeat the Romans, But in another sense, I think their expectation of the Messiah was actually more accurate than even our own. Um, And that's because I think many Christians today think that God's mission on earth is left to nothing more than saving souls so that they go to heaven when they die. And that's not the message of the kingdom of God. What the Jews did get right and what so many of us get wrong is that the kingdom of God is not just rescuing souls for the afterlife. But it is nothing less than the renewal and the restoration of this creation. And that work has already begun. It began at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I think the the deeper question is, What exactly does that mean, though, that God's kingdom is more and more visible on this earth in this moment? What exactly is it that we're asking God to do when we say, your kingdom come, your will to be done on earth? It's interesting, speaking in December uh, to a political gathering where actually many evangelical Christians were present in attendance, uh, Donald Trump Jr. expressed this frustration Uh, with the teachings of Jesus, with this quote. And he said at this conference, we've been playing t-ball for half a century while they're playing hardball, referring to the left. We've turned the other cheek. And I understand the biblical reference. I understand the mentality. But it's gotten us nothing. And what Trump Jr. was arguing for is that, man, on the right, we have to play hardball like the left. We have to get tough. And I get all this stuff about turning the other cheek and the Sermon on the Mount stuff. And yeah, it's in the Bible, but it doesn't work. It's not how we're going to get victory. It doesn't exactly provide a roadmap for victory, does it? At least not politically. And it's interesting, as Jesus taught during his earthly ministry, his kingdom confuses and scandalizes people because it just doesn't meet their expectations of what it would look like if God were to reign in power. I think that's why Jesus was seen as such a disappointment to the Jews when they had so much hope in him that he was going to be their answer. Look at the description of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12, verse 18 to 21. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. 
I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Now, this is quoting a passage in Isaiah. And to put it bluntly, I think the statement that's being made here about Jesus is, in all honesty, Jesus looks weak. He looks weak. He's not the kind of person that anybody would notice. He doesn't look like he's making any kind of discernible impact in the world. He doesn't look the part of a commanding and inspirational leader. And I think that's the first confusion about the kingdom of God and the kingly reign of God is that the truth is that quite often God seems weak to us. He seems weak, doesn't he? Don't we truthfully wish that God would show up more definitively in our life at times? Don't we feel like, man, if I'm a Christian and if God is on my team, then shouldn't there be some more wins here? Why does it so often feel like we're defeated? And I think that was the mentality of the Jews when they saw Jesus. Is listen, if this guy is not going to overthrow the Roman Empire then what good is he to us as a Messiah? What's the point? And I think the truth is, in all honesty, that's how many Christians feel about Jesus as well. I think one of the reasons why we do escape into the past or the future is because we are dissatisfied with how God is handling our present He's not doing enough. There's not enough movement here. And I think that's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray freshly every day. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the prayer, Jesus does invite us to ask for the things that we need, our daily bread. But he also says, that that prayer also ought to be accompanied by a prayer of surrender that says, God, your will be done in my life, whatever that may be. At the heart of Jesus' plan to build his kingdom is for us to follow his example and assume a posture of weakness, serving others at our own expense. That is kingdom living in a nutshell, is to follow the example that Christ set for us and to put the needs of others in front of our own and are even willing to take a loss that others would gain. That is the kingdom of God breaking into the kingdoms of this world. And I think that is such an important message for the church in America today because I think the American church has been seduced by power for the last several decades. 
And I think there is this wrong-headed mentality that Christianity will win in this country if we only get enough of our officials elected into Congress or if we can get a majority on the Supreme Court. Then Jesus will win. And I don't see any of that in the Gospels as being the pattern or the roadmap that Christ himself lays for us for the building of his kingdom. In fact, it's rather quite the opposite. And I think that's what's so offensive about the kingdom of God is it doesn't meet our expectations of what we think it ought to mean if Christ reigns over our world. Jesus is building his kingdom, but he is building it through the love and service of his followers, one life at a time. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 to 28, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Jesus tells his disciples that the world operates on a very different principle, and that's survival of the strongest. The strong devour the weak. But he says, my kingdom is an upside-down kingdom in which those who hold the positions of power and privilege actually use those God-given resources to serve the ones who are on the bottom. This uh, Turkish artist by the name of Ur Galenkush um, created this gallery of images in which he took photos from wealthier nations and combined them with ones of uh, poorer countries. If you can show the first image there. And these images are just arresting in the message that they convey. One child sits on a seesaw wearing designer clothes while another sits on the turret of a broken down tank amidst the rubble of his village. A father gives his daughters a bath out in the open air with the backdrop of a bombed out city juxtaposed against a high-end bathroom with floor-to-ceiling marble. A musician plays a guitar and that image is blended with a child soldier holding an AK-47. A refugee father carries his child in a basket as he flees his country, while another man's hands are filled with shopping bags in a high-end mall. Homeless children sleep on the side of the road with cars whizzing dangerously close to their heads, while other children sleep on down comforters in the safety of their suburban home. And these images are really hard to look at. This last one just really disturbed me. The thought that any parent would lay their child to sleep with blankets like that on a roadside like that. But as I shared last week, his years of earthly ministry and his teaching clearly reveals that Jesus' solidarity is with the poor, the marginalized, the forgotten, the weak, 
And here's the thing. As his followers, he calls us to join him in this ministry of caring for the least of these. I think that is at the heart of what it means to live this present day, not obsessed with the past or not fixated on the future, but what are the needs that stand right before us this moment that we are callous to and have no concern over, but God's heart is in that place of the needs that surround us. I'm so thankful for the generosity of so many of you who gave during this Capsar Sheep Project that we actually recently did. And we'll give a fuller report, show some videos of that. Uh, We've already sent the money over there. And so Pastor Janet, who's administering this project, has been inundating my uh, inbox with these stories and these photos of families who have already become recipients of these sheep because of your donation. And because of all the money that we raised, actually it looks like by the end of this project, 100 needy families are going to be each given one sheep which has the opportunity through that single animal to take the first steps out of poverty. And when you read these stories, they're utterly heartbreaking to see some AIDS orphans where both mom and dad have died because of HIV, AIDS, and others that, whose uh, families have just been devastated into uh, horrible poverty. And what this gift is offering to them as a ray of hope to come out of their horrible situations. I think this is where we need to think about the kingdom of God being lived out in our lives. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 7 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. I think this is the invitation to every one of us as to what it means to live fully present in today. It's great to help out needy families in Kenya. But I would argue that there are needs that surround you every day when you go to your places of work. When you look around at your family, your spouse and your children and your neighbors and the people that you're rubbing shoulders with every day. And I think that is the radical call of the kingdom of God. So that we, as the followers of Jesus, rather than bickering or whining or resenting or joining in the gossip or attacking others, that rather than joining in all that mudslinging, that we become the light in that darkness and show the heart of Christ to maybe even the very people who are attacking us or hurting us. I think that is what it means to live as a follower of Christ. The last thing that I just want to highlight, and we'll just try to wrap up here really shortly, is this other part of the Lord's Prayer found in verse 12 of Matthew 6. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven 
our debtors. I think what Jesus is saying to us is this. Every day ought to be an opportunity for you to come afresh into a posture of repentance and confession. It is the fundamental orientation of the heart of a follower of Jesus Christ is to acknowledge and to confess and to own up to our own sinfulness. And that is such a radically different posture than what we see in our world today. In Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses, which he nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg, he wrote these 95 grievances against the Catholic Church. And at the very top, number one out of 95, do you know what it was? It was when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther started with this because he said this is where everything lies in the problem of the church today. It's because of our utter refusal to acknowledge our own sinfulness. And as a result of that, all the other problems in the church arise. And I think if that was true in Luther's day, that is just as much true in our day. I think one of the most important signs of a person who has experienced the touch of God is this ability to confess sin and to repent. Because our natural instinct is to blame and judge others and to be totally blind to our own failings and shortcomings and sins. Not long before World War I began, a British newspaper ran this article with this interesting title that simply said, What's Wrong with the World? And this guy, G.K. Chesterton, a Christian apologist living in Britain at the time, read that article, and he wrote back to the newspaper this very short letter in response. Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I think what Chesterton captures is the heart of a person that really lives in the kingdom of God, which is to say, I have stopped playing that game of blaming everybody else in my life for the problems in the world, the problems in my life. And what I've come to realize is that I am the problem. I have to begin with me. My job has never been to judge others. That's not something God has even asked of me. That's not in my domain. I am not their judge. God is their judge. But what is open to me is the opportunity to reflect on my own heart. And that takes nothing less than an act of God to take somebody so proud, so blind, so hardened, and soften that heart and say, it's me. I'm the problem here. I have to confess to God. And so to live every day in the kingdom of God is to live in this posture of humility and repentance before him. I'll be honest with you. As a pastor, I hear a lot of chatter about how all the different segments in our church see what the problems of ICC are. But you know what the funny commonality is? It's never them that's the problem. It's always this other group of people in our church that's the problem. And how are we going to come together as one body in Christ if that's our perspective? Is, wow, ICC would be so much better if those people could get their act together. 
I think if the Spirit of God is really in us, then the mutual testimony of all of us would be, no, it has to begin with me. I'm the problem here at ICC. It's my own selfishness. It's my own, my own self-judgment, my own self-righteousness that causes me to judge others or to look down on them or to be turned off by them or push them away because they're not one of us. It has to begin with the spirit of repentance if the kingdom of God is real in our midst. And the only way we could have that confidence to confess anything like that is if we know and understand the grace that is available to us when we confess. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 to 10 says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. What John is writing about is the very real tug of war that's going in our hearts where we say, listen, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm okay. It's them. They're the problem. And what John is saying is if anyone says that, then you're proving God to be the liar because he says all of us have sinned. We all have faults. We have all failed. And it is only by the grace of God that we can ever experience the true spiritual growth that God wants for us. This idea of repentance is not because God wants to make us feel like a worm and to make us feel like a nobody. That's not the purpose of repentance. What I would argue is that the only way to genuine spiritual growth is through this road of repentance, of each one of us being able to begin with that humble posture to say, it's got to begin with me in terms of what's wrong with my marriage, in terms of what's going on with my children, in terms of what's happening in my small group or in my church or my place of work. It's not my coworker. It's not my spouse. It's not my no good friends. It's me. I'm the one that God needs to do this work in. It begins with me. It's interesting during this break, um, you know, having all the kids home. And uh, there was just this kind of casual interaction that was going on. And I had said something and made a comment. And then one of my kids actually replied in this way that I felt like was kind of taking a cheap shot at me, you know. And I think impugning certain motives that I did not intend. That as if I was trying to grandstand or puff myself up or something like that or justify myself. And I remember immediately bristling and getting kind of upset. And why did he say, where did that come from, you know? And saying, that's a cheap shot at me. And getting really defensive, you know? But it was while I was thinking about this whole New Year's message, you know, and thinking that I was going to preach this. And in one of those rare moments when the Holy Spirit just kind of hit me with this lightning bolt, I thought, isn't this exactly what you're preparing to tell your congregation? And I remember just thinking at that moment, um, okay, maybe the messenger wasn't perfect. And maybe the message could have been stated better. But I said, but maybe there's a grain of truth in what's being said to you right now that you need to hear. And so I bit my tongue <laughs> and I didn't say anything back. 
And I thought, wow, is that me? Am I like that? Is that how my children perceive me? Is this what I am? And it led me to a real moment of repentance where I said, God, change my heart. Change my heart. And I, and I realized how hard this is even for me to just take on that posture of repentance and confession. Because in most circles, I am a respected figure as a pastor, as a spiritual leader. And I realized that how that has built in me so many defenses of self-justification that even when I can acknowledge a wrong, usually I can minimize it by explaining it away. But I think one of the things that God is challenging in my heart for this coming year is, man, Steve, you need a humbler heart where you can really come before God and be reminded of what genuine repentance really is like when you can be actually aggrieved by your sin once again and not be so self-justifying or defensive about it. And like I said, this isn't about God wanting to condemn me, but this is his mercy toward me and toward you to say this is what spiritual growth looks like. This is the path to the kingdom is each of us being able to acknowledge this is where I fall short and I need the mercy of God to help me in this moment. Let's pray.